When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think a lot of people think of experiments as free, right? Like, oh, if I just try this, it doesn't cost me anything. I'm just, I'm testing it out. I'm throwing it out there. I'm throwing spaghetti on the wall, but it actually does cost you. Um, Experiments are actually not free because your time is not. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Last week, I re-aired an episode with Tim Urban from January of 2021, more than a year ago. And you know what? I got a ton of incredible feedback from people who had never heard that episode before. I had all this anxiety about whether or not people would be upset about me airing a past episode rather than a new episode. And that episode got as many, if not more, downloads, plays, and positive notes as any other episode. And here's the other side of that. By re-airing that episode, I extended my own production pipeline, I got to relax for the weekend with my groomsmen getting our suits fitted for the wedding, and it was a really important reminder of what Andy J. Pizza calls playing your hits. One of the big principles for social media that I'm trying to get people to embrace is that you are not a robot. You know, you, you are not a content generating machine. Okay. Like if you try to post new artwork all the time, every day, several times a week, you will burn out. It's not realistic. And, and in fact, the people that are crushing it on social media, aren't doing that. We get so caught up in feeling like we need to create something new all the time that we forget about all the great work we've done in the past that may have gone unnoticed by most of the people who even follow us. So I'd encourage you to think about some of your best work. And instead of creating something new, what if you reshared that? Maybe it was a post on Instagram that didn't get as much engagement as you expected, or a tweet that you loved but flopped. What if you just tried again? What if you improved upon it rather than create something totally new? Iteration and improvement is something that today's guest cares about a lot. Her name is Wes Cow. Wes is the co-founder of Maven, the first platform for cohort-based courses, or CBCs, as you'll hear me say a lot today. We'll talk more about cohort-based courses here in a second, but to understand what a cohort-based course is, you need to understand what a cohort-based course is not. And Wes's experience with online courses starts about a decade ago. Around 2014, the main form of online learning was MOOCs, massive open online courses. So these are evergreen, self-paced, on-demand courses like Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, Coursera, Skillshare, where you basically have a series of videos that you watch and you watch them yourself on your own time. MOOCs, these massive open online courses, you may hear them call self-paced courses or pre-recorded courses were just about how every online creator was educating their audience at scale back in 2014. One of the most innovative creators in the world of online education was and still is Seth Godin, my guest on the very first episode of Creative Elements. In 2014, long before Wes was the co-founder of Maven, she was special projects lead for Seth Godin HQ, where she produced best-selling MOOCs on Udemy. But despite the success of the self-paced courses she and Seth were developing, they weren't satisfied with the impact those courses were having on their students. As you may know, completion rates for self-paced courses just aren't very good, and they wanted to change that. But no one had really found a better way yet. The place that we started was, well, what if we just literally did the opposite of what MOOCs do? Like, let's start there and brainstorm and, and see what we get. We end up coming up with the Alt MBA, you know, and that really kicked off the category of core-based courses. This type of course that is community driven. 
There's a lot more accountability. There's a lot more hands-on doing. It's not as much passive content consumption as it is hands-on practice. Priced in a way that requires students to have skin in the game. Usually courses on Udemy are 10 to $20. And so, you know, if it sucks or if you don't show up, if you quit partway through, no big deal. But if you're paying between $500 to $5,000 for a core-based course, you're usually a lot more committed. Yes, you heard that right. It's actually very common now for these CBCs, cohort-based courses, to cost anywhere from $500 to $5,000. And students are happily enrolling at those prices. And it really started with Wes and Seth's work on building the Alt-MBA, which I enrolled in myself back in July of 2017. Under Wes's leadership, the Alt-MBA grew from zero to 550 cities in 45 countries in just three years. She designed the All-MBA's beloved coaching system, grew the global community, built the marketing engine, and built a team of 40 people to support rapid scaling. And in the years since, Wes has worked with a lot of the most innovative creators in online education, helping them to build their own cohort-based courses. And if you haven't tried to build and run your own CBC, let me tell you, it's a bigger challenge than you probably realize. Even for the people I worked with who had teams and were you know, more advanced, they still had really convoluted setups where we were cobbling together Slack, Zoom, Teachable, Podia, Kajabi, Harpy Chat, Mighty, and stitching it all together with email and Google Calendar invites. And keeping track of all of these different platforms, what integrated with what, certain things would break at random times, as you know, So I also saw a lot of the dark side of, wow, like this is really hard to create a core-based course. That insight and that experience led Wes to co-found Maven to help creators build a cohort-based course and deliver an incredible student experience at scale. And believe it or not, this came full circle because one of Wes's co-founders, Gagan Biani, was also the co-founder of Udemy, the marketplace for MOOCs. So in this episode, we talk about Wes's early experiences building cohort-based courses, how you can decide whether teaching a CBC is right for you, the frameworks you can use to design your course curriculum, and why rigorous thinking helps her to build quickly without wasting time on failed experiments. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now let's talk to Wes. One of my first projects working with Seth was creating a self-paced course based on his content, a Udemy course that became a best-selling course of that year. But as we were putting together that content and scripting and figuring out what the curriculum should be, we realized that the completion rates were super low for MOOCs. It's anywhere between 7 to 10%. And a recent MIT study said it's even lower, that it's actually 3 to 6%. So a bunch of people get really excited to learn, and a tiny percentage of people actually stay long enough for any of that learning to actually happen. And it just felt like such a waste that we were spending so much time creating this amazing course, and that so few people would actually experience you know, more than 10% of it. So we started kicking around some ideas around, how could we flip the script? How could we try something different that might be more engaging, that challenges whether MOOCs are really, you know, the end-all be-all of what online education was supposed to be and promised to be. So uh, it ended up being uh, four weeks, three projects per week, entirely group project driven. So Seth Godin himself never shows up in the course. There's no silver bullets or shortcuts that you as a student get. It is all about doing the work and learning by doing. I love this exercise of what if we did the complete opposite? And usually when that's done, it's like the extreme of the other side. And then you find some way to like find a moderate middle. But it feels like the the cohort-based course model really is like at the extreme end of opposite from a MOOC. Uh, am I correct in, in thinking that way? Yeah, I think there are some similarities in that both are online. So the accessibility of being able to log in from anywhere, not needing to travel to uh, a physical location, I think those are some similarities. But yeah, it's, it's pretty different. I'm a big proponent of what I call rubber band thinking. What I mean by that is doing thought experiments where you stretch an idea to the extreme. 
and you scenario plan, what would it look like if we did this? And in this case, it was, what if we did the opposite of something? And the reason it's called rubber band thinking is because when you stretch a rubber band, it, you can stretch it pretty far, but when you let go of it, it eventually bounces back. It might be a little bit looser, but it kind of bounces back somewhere between, you know, as tight as it was and as loose as you had stretched it. And so one big lesson from the Alt-MBA was if we had just looked at the online learning options at the time and just used MOOCs as inspiration, we would have ended up with something that was very similar to MOOCs, maybe MOOCs plus, right? Like a little bit of community or a little bit of live interaction. But I think that the key to what allowed us to come up with something as different and as magical as this concept of court-based courses is because we stretched it all the way to the extreme. And then from there, we were anchored on something different now than, than being anchored on everything else that was around us at the time. The cynical side of me looks at cohort-based courses and online, it's like this awesome new format. And then I think, but is this like just the oldest way that we've always been learning actually? Like, isn't this just the way it always was before online was a thing? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Socrates and Plato were doing cohort-based learning in, you know, the Colosseum, right? So yes, it's, it's, it's kind of taking the best parts of traditional learning and bringing it online. So if you think about the best college class that you had, the best seminar that you took where the professor really cared and you had dialogue with other students where you were debating a concept, you were discussing it, you were, you were poking holes in each other's thinking, you were challenging and building on each other's ideas and doing it with a group of people that cared as much as you did about a certain topic who were of a similar level of craftsmanship and, and um, skill set. That's those, those experiences were magical. And that wasn't just college, but if you think back to K through 12, like there were, there were moments of experiences like that. And cohort-based courses are basically taking the best parts of traditional education and then bringing that online. After Alt-MBA, you worked with several other course creators before starting Maven. Can you talk about some of the other course creators you worked with pre-Maven? Yeah, absolutely. After leaving the Alt-MBA, I had a nagging question about, you know, was there something in the water at the time when we did the Alt-MBA that made all of this work, that allowed us to scale to thousands of, of students and alumni from all over the world who wanted to do this? Or was there something about the format itself that could lend itself equally well to different verticals, different industries, different topics, different thought leaders, and consultants, creators, coaches who wanted to teach their expertise also? Um, and so I sought out to, to answer this question. And one of my first clients was Professor Scott Galloway from NYU Stern and of Section 4. So Prof G was one of my first clients. I helped work with him and his founding team on designing their sprint, their proprietary sprint that they've since expanded from a strategy sprint into a brand sprint, platform sprint, product sprint, covering a bunch of different topics. I worked with David Perel, Tiago Forte, also the co-founders of Morning Brew to design the Morning Brew Accelerator, their eight-week course. And I think what's, what's so fantastic about David and Tiago is that neither of them had prior teaching experience. They didn't come from academia. They didn't come from, you know, a place of wanting to be a teacher per se. But, you know, David Perel, for example, is a 20-something-year-old who makes over a million dollars per year online teaching writing with no formal writing background. But he adds so much value to his students and teaches them the way that the internet works and the way that writing online works and the way that, that you can build an audience as a modern professional online, the way that you can find your niche and write about it and use it to build your brand. So working with a bunch of these creators was incredible because I saw the patterns of what made core-based courses work and why instructors and creators were increasingly drawn to wanting to teach online in this new format, but also a lot of the, the downsides of teaching core-based courses, namely that it was a, a terrible slog to do all the logistics and administrative parts of creating a course. And instructors are spending way more time than they should dealing with parts that are not about community, not about connection, not about content. Those are the parts that they want to be spending time on, but, but there's all this like other, other stuff. So that, that led me to the idea of Maven and joining up with Gog and Biani, my co-founder, co-founder of Udemy also, as we started to riff and brainstorm and, and kind of 
uh, commiserate on, wow, like it's really annoying to create a course. And how has there not been any software company that's tackled this problem yet? And is that something that we want to do together, given that we're both so excited about the potential of core-based courses? At that time, you were writing and sharing things personally on your website, on your blog, on LinkedIn. I saw it on Twitter and things. Before you started Maven, there was probably a point in time where you thought, well, I could be a content entrepreneur and keep creating myself, or I could go into like company building. Did you face that question? Yes, I love this question. I have reflected on that in the past year or so, and no one's asked me that, actually. But I think about it, so I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought it up. I think there were parts of being a consultant that I, that I absolutely loved. I loved the freedom. I loved being able to ramp up or ramp down the amount of uh, clients that I wanted to have at any given moment. I loved only working with people that I really connected with. When you're when you're in house or when you're running a company or you know part of an organization, you have less control over those things. So I really loved the freedom of of being independent and being a creator. The part I didn't like about being a creator was the weekly agony that I felt trying to write an article or or blog Relatable. post. Yes, yes, like and that never went away. Like I uh, have an article on brand versus performance marketing that took me five months. Mm. To write. And it's very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Spiky Point of View was an idea that I talked about for years before finally writing that, that article. Uh, and I knew I wanted to write it. I knew I wanted to get it down on paper, but it, it was such an important idea for me and so, so near and dear to my heart that I, didn't, I wanted to do it justice. So I was constantly putting stuff, putting stuff off because I thought I can't do it justice. Like the, the way that it's written right now isn't good enough. I can't publish it. So I was constantly dealing with this internal agony all the freaking time. Same thing with any change on my website. Oh God, like what I wanted to put above the fold, whether to have this in my navigation. So that part of being a creator was, was, you know, was not my favorite. And now kind of on the flip side, being an operator, starting a company, you know, in the past year, I've, I've thought about how there are a lot of things about being an operator that I absolutely love. And you know, it's weird because I thought, you know, am I more of a creator or am I more of an operator? Uh, and I think that people can be both, but I think you're a bit more one than the other. So you can be a creator, creator dash operator, uh, creator CEO, you know, creator marketer, creator, whatever, creator founder. But I do think that most people are more of one versus the other. And I think that a lot of the creators and clients that I worked with as a consultant were more on that creator side. They loved creating content. They loved building content, right? Like you kind of have to love content, I think, as a creator. Uh, it's the way that you share your thoughts, the way you, you connect with your audience. And for me, I love thinking about challenging ideas and figuring out the boundaries of an idea. But I don't, I, I don't love creating content per se, though. Uh, and so that was always a challenge for me. Whereas as an operator, being able to work with teams, being able to coach my direct reports, being able to bounce ideas with people. Um, also, as, as, a, as a creator consultant, sometimes it can be lonely, right? Like you have your clients, but, but it's a lot of us are, you know, solo, solo consultants. So uh, as an operator, you usually have a team. You have people that you can talk about ideas with to, to spark thoughts. And there are always deadlines. There's always an upcoming deadline and you don't get to change it. As a creator, you kind of get well. to change and be flexible with, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of. But as an operator, you know, there, there are a lot of people um, who depend on you and who you depend on, right? So there are more dependencies that are a little bit harder to change. I think that the flexibility of being a creator sometimes was tough for me. Like I love the flexibility, but it was also the thing that was like my Achilles heel. Whereas, the, the, whereas being an operator, it's, it's almost like me not wanting to disappoint other people gets me to show up and do yeah. the thing, which is actually very similar to, to why core-based courses work, right? Like when you are learning on your own, you are taking Udemy course, you know, and I said I was going to watch, you know, a lecture a day, right? Or even a lecture a week and you miss a day or you miss a week, no one really notices. And you can explain to yourself and justify to yourself why, you know, the thing that you did instead in that 30 minutes or 15 minutes was more valuable. Like you can make all kinds of, you know, excuses for yourself, but as an operator where there are other people depending on you and, and you'll feel the shame of, of missing a deadline or, or, you know, them pinging you and being like, Hey Wes, 
where's that thing? Or like, hey, like, are you showing up to this meeting or whatever? That, that plays an incredible role in, in, in making me prioritize and really get things done. After a quick break, Wes and I talk about the power of naming your ideas and how she uses rigorous thinking to save her a lot of time and headache. And later, we talk about how you can decide whether or not teaching a cohort-based course is right for you. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full-time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a creator science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Wes Cow. Something I really admire about Wes is her ability to create frameworks and names for ideas that stick. The term cohort-based course is a perfect example. That style of online education didn't have a name until Wes and her co-founder Goggin began calling it a cohort-based course. Now, when someone wants to describe an online course that is taught live over a period of weeks to a specific group of students, we can just call it a cohort-based course. Wes also has this really great essay about a concept she calls spiky points of view, which I'll link in the show notes. There's so much benefit that comes from naming something that catches on. Not only do people now have shared vocabulary, but now that term can also be credited to you, which builds your own creative platform. I'm fascinated with naming things, going all the way back to episode one with Seth when I asked him when he decides it's worth creating a new term or using existing language. And he told me that it's kind of an art. Permission marketing, I could have just called it how to deliver anticipated personal and relevant messages to people who want to get them and not be a spammer. But that doesn't really roll off the tongue. But it needed a name because it was a special thing. You needed to have someone whose job title was vice president of permission marketing. And if it didn't have a name, you couldn't be vice president of it. And other times, like in my book, Survival is Not Enough, I invented tons of words and none of it caught on because I was out of control. Out of control how? I was just inventing words for fun, right? There, there, I was inventing words where words didn't need to be invented. Would you say it's true then that 
things that catch on that you kind of create or coin are things that already there's an inherent need for new terminology for, or yeah. how much of that can be made up for with just pure brute force repetition? Oh, a bunch. Yeah, it's definitely a fine line. I like naming ideas that I've thought about for a long time, have proven out in a bunch of different scenarios and use cases, and feel like having a shorthand way to refer to this concept would make it easier for me to talk to with my team about. So something like spiky point of view, you know, we could explain it in a longer winded way, but it's kind of an easy reminder for other people and for yourself to think of a certain concept. So I, I see it mainly as, as shorthand. If there is a need for the shorthand, then let's create a name for it. If there's not really a need for it, then, you know, don't just go around, you know, inventing names for no reason, because that kind of, that reduces the importance and weight of, of everything else that you have named. Uh, but behind the scenes, I probably think of 10, 15 different versions of a name wow. before tweeting the name that I eventually so like br the brand versus performance marketing spectrum, for example, I debated for a long time about whether the post title should be called the law of brand versus performance marketing. And I ended up including both in the post. I even changed the title, you know, like I think I changed it like two months after publishing. I just like went in and changed it and then I changed it back. So I, I wouldn't take it too seriously with naming things. I think play around with with a name that you think could make sense. But behind the scenes, I'm sharing that. I'm sure that behind the scenes, there's a lot of messiness because it feels like you see a great term that someone uses and it's like, wow, like that's so right. Like it feels so intuitive. It feels so inevitable. But behind the scenes, I, I guarantee you it is, it is not that way. I've talked to a lot of friends who will also send me, you know, vote. Which one do you like more? Like I'm texting my friends like, yes. hey, right? Which one, which one resonates more with you, right? So like- Creators, we're all doing that behind the scenes. So yeah, I think that's very encouraging to know that, that that's part of a lot of people's process. I love that. I have this like development pipeline, which is first, I'll just throw it out to my fiance and see how she reacts. And then if she reacts positively, then I tweet it. And if that goes well, yeah. now it might live as a blog post. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to add when you're talking about creator versus operator, this is why I love the term creator so much because it doesn't have to have any bearing on your employment status. You know, I think a lot of people get really in their heads about their identity of I'm a product manager at this thing or I'm a creative director here. And if that goes away, they kind of think like, what am I now? And for a long time, I had that issue with being an entrepreneur. But when you're a creator, you can be a creator on the side of your job. You can be a creator part-time. You can be a creator full-time. It doesn't really matter. It's just this, this like jacket you can put on and be proud of no matter where you're going in the morning. Absolutely. I also love how the term creator inherently, it's built into the definition that you are creating something, that you are building, that you are producing. And I feel like on the business side, we haven't had a term like that. Like, when you think about engineers, software developers, like they build something, right? Or like even designers, they build things. You can see the things that they build. There's pixels, there's code. And I struggled with, on the business side, there wasn't really a great term that connoted builder in the same way. On the business side, a lot of the, the things that we build are, you know, end up, you know, becoming copy, right? Like sometimes it's copy, but, but copy isn't just the thing that you're building though. Like that might be the final expression of the thing, but the strategy behind it, right? Building the strategy, building the idea behind it, how this would all work, aligning incentives, making the offer a juicy enough offer that your, your customers or your audience, you know, wants to engage, figuring out the timing, right? Like you're, you're building all of those things, but they're, they're kind of invisible. And I like how creator kind of encompasses and gives a name to building things that aren't necessarily technical. You're building yeah. newsletters, you're building podcasts, you're building website, you know, copy or programming events, gatherings, right? Like you're building all kinds of different things. And I love that it, it highlights that, the, the building piece. And I feel like the most common and important creative act that we do every day is solving problems, like big or small. Yes. Any problem is just like, if, if I need to come up with a solution, 
I have a set of design constraints, essentially. And the solution is what satisfies those constraints. Yeah, absolutely. The problem solving, building solutions to problems. That's, that totally counts in that bucket. And I think this is something that you do really, really well. And you've, you've kind of like alluded to it a lot throughout this interview, but you strike me as someone who, whether implicitly or explicitly, like you're constantly taking design constraints and coming up with solutions that solve that in a way that is like shareable, is easily understandable. So how do you approach any given problem that comes your way or anything that you're trying to accomplish? Is there a framework that you follow or a set of steps that you kind of go down? Yes, I have a couple different frameworks that I use regularly on a daily basis. One is, what is it for? So you're familiar with this because we teach this in the Alt MBA. The idea of what is it for is thinking about the end result and outcome and goal of what it is that you're trying to do. A lot of times you might see a tactic and it's kind of like a shiny object. You see your friend doing this or a competitor doing that. And you think like, oh, that's so cool. We should do something similar. And you don't really think about, well, why, why, are, why would we do this? And what would it get us? Like, why is this worth the time, energy, effort, resources, right? So I call this principle rigorous thinking. This idea of having a systematic way to vet decisions and vet ideas where you are thinking about second order effects, you're thinking about trade-offs, you're thinking about inputs and outputs, you're thinking about what resources would it take to bring this to life and why will the payoff be worth it? You're thinking about what could go wrong and what's a way that we could test this idea in a small way. So it's thinking about that full picture and just rigorously vetting an idea as opposed to lazy thinking, which is assuming things will just work. Assuming that if you try it and if you're enthusiastic about it, then things will just magically happen. And it's kind of like, lazy thinking is kind of like um, the, the South Park episode where one of the characters, I don't even watch South Park, but I love this <laughs> example where one of the characters has a business idea and he's like, okay, step one, the idea. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. Remember our company plan, guys. Start up, cash in, sell out, bro down. And, and right, it's just like, yes, like, okay, like what is step two though? Like that is the most important part. Like how do we get from the idea to all of a sudden we have thousands of signups, we have thousands of customers, we have revenue, we have people knocking on our door, wanting this thing. Like that question mark piece is really the most important part. But I think a lot of times we get so excited and so distracted by, by an interesting tactic that we don't think about the building blocks, the actual steps of, of logic of why would someone want to do the action that we are asking them to do? Why would someone want to subscribe to your newsletter? Why would someone want to join your course and sign up for your course? Why would someone want to hire you as a coach or consultant? Like, right, like really thinking about aligning incentives and that logic of why someone would want to take the action that, that you want them to do. So I call that rigorous thinking. I think this is really important to the artists and creatives listening to this show, even though I, I could hear some eyes glaze over. So come back to me, folks. Let me let me talk about why this is so important, because we are we are gifted with all of these beautiful ideas that we get so excited about and we feel like we can I can make this real. You know, I can see in my mind what this is going to be. I could go and do this right now. And we don't do this rigorous thinking and we make a thing, but we don't know what it's for. We don't know who it's for. We don't know how to translate those benefits in language, whether it's on Instagram or in writing to the people that it is for, and it doesn't go anywhere. And now we're stuck maintaining this thing that we said we're going to do, and it becomes a time suck. And I think a lot of creators listening to the show probably have a project or two that didn't take off the way you wanted to. You may not even be putting the energy into it that you think that you should. And now it's just a drag on even just your mind and your, your attention. So I think this rigorous thing is really important. What happens when you can't think through what this is for or why it matters? Like how often do you just kill an idea? I think the, the beauty of rigorous thinking is that it allows you to move faster and commit to projects that are worth committing to. So I loved your example just there that, you know, a lot of times you might start something and then, you know, you're kind of stuck maintaining it. You know, I think rigorous thinking actually even, even helps you get to conviction faster than prototyping. If you even stop to think for five minutes about an idea, you might not have to do a five-day sprint to build it and then get to whatever conclusion, go or no-go, that would have come at the end of that. So 
it's kind of ironic. It's kind of paradoxical that you spend more time up front thinking rigorously. And that feels kind of boring. I get that, right? Like it's kind of, oh, like I have to think about all this stuff. Like I want to just do, like I want to jump in, right? But doing this upfront thinking actually saves you a bunch of time from learning the hard way. So much. Uh, from implementing and then realizing the lesson that you could have realized if you, if you thought about it a bit more. So I love it because it, it helps me and my team move a lot faster. And we did this at AltMBA. We did this at Seth Godin HQ. A lot of people will look from the outside in and say like, oh, wow, like all the stuff that you guys do is so cool. Like there's always people who want to engage. There's always a line out the door, digital line out the door. And it's because we thought really rigorously about every single thing that we were launching. And it's not always apparent when you look from the outside, because a lot of what Seth talks about is shipping, right? Like ship, you know, just do it, iterate, et cetera. And you might think, how do these two concepts coexist? How do they live together? And they actually live together beautifully, because if you spend a little bit of time thinking about something, it allows you to put, put more of your energy and efforts towards projects that have a higher likelihood of succeeding and when you see traction, when you see people wanting to engage with you and they're excited, they're signing up, they're pinging you, they're DMing you, they want in, that's really motivating. Yeah. I, I find myself killing a lot of ideas lately because the framework that I've started putting on things is, okay, let's say this does go really well. What does that mean for me in my life, in my days? And am I happy with that? Like, what is the commitment cost is how I think about it? Because that maintenance and that just drag on your mind share is so much bigger than I ever realized it was. And it gets worse the busier you are. The busier you are, any new commitment is such an investment. And it doesn't mm -hmm. feel that way, especially in the beginning when you're in this phase of like, I just want to get traction with something. So I'm saying yes to everything. And a lot of people say yes to everything for a long time. And then they realize, oh, I got to start saying no to most things. Actually, you got to start saying no to like everything. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I love that. I think that a lot of ideas that you have are probably good. But are they excellent? So that's really, that's really the higher bar that you want to go for because you could have 20 ideas, 20 tactics that you could do at any even moment. And they're all fairly decent. Like you can make the case for, you know, doing any one of them, but your time and your bandwidth and your mind share, your, your peace of mind are finite resources. So you need to think about allocating those resources very carefully. Thinking about it less as, you know, here's a, a whole pool, a whole list of ideas that I could that I could go with. And instead thinking about a stack rank of if what is going to be the most highly leveraged, what is going to give me the biggest payoff and be fun for me to do and, you know, and build towards long term or whatever, whatever values and principles that you're, you're driving towards. Really thinking about how your bandwidth and time are, are finite. I think a lot of people think of experiments as free right? Like, oh, if I just try this, it doesn't cost me anything. I'm just, I'm testing it out. I'm throwing it out there. I'm throwing spaghetti on the wall, but it actually does cost you. Um, experiments are actually not free because your time is not free. When we come back, Wes and I talk about how to know whether or not a cohort-based course is right for you, as well as some of her favorite frameworks for designing a course curriculum right after this. Hey, welcome back. A lot of creators that I meet and talk to have at least considered creating an online course, usually a self-paced course, and they get there because they know they have something they can share, something they can teach, and in a lot of ways, they may already be teaching people through their content. You may be one of those people too, but a CBC may not yet be on your radar. So I asked Wes how a creator should determine whether or not a cohort-based course is a good fit for your content and your personality. One of my favorite frameworks is thinking about assets and constraints. So if you think about your current situation, your current portfolio of offerings, you might be consulting, you might be doing some public speaking, you might be running some in-person workshops, you might be writing a newsletter, uh, you might have a, a self-paced Udemy course already. When you take stock of what your current situation is and where there are certain gaps, I think that's a really good place to start to think whether a court-based course could fill some of those gaps for you. So one common challenge that I hear from a lot of course creators is that they've capped out on trading time for money, that they are a coach or a consultant, they're, they're implementing, they're executing, and they want a more scalable way, a more highly leveraged way to engage with their audience and add a lot of value. So the options that you have at that point are, you know, you have a couple. One is group coaching, one is creating a, an evergreen course, and the other is creating a cohort-based course. 
And I think the the thing that a lot of creators have said to me about why they chose to, to do a core-based course is that you can have high scale and high price points with core-based courses. So if you think about a two-by-two two matrix where it's, you know, on the left side, it's low scale, right side is high scale, bottom is low price, top is high price. There's not that many things in the top right quadrant where you can have near unlimited potential to scale and you can maintain a, a pretty high price point. So there's not that trade-off with that you see with consulting, for example, where you can charge a high price point, but you have a limited number of hours in the, in the day, right? So Tiago Forte, I think is a great example. He's said how in the past five years of running his course, Build the Second Brain, he's made over $5 million running his course. And the total number of students, the total number of customers that he's had is only 3,500. And in internet, internet land, as he calls it, that's a, a, a tiny, tiny group of customers. Like there are, there, there are Udemy courses with tens of thousands of students in their first year of running. But if you are charging $10 for a course, you need a lot of students to be able to make a living. But if you're charging $750, $1,000, $2,000 for a seat in your core-based course, you're able to cater to a diehard group, subgroup within your community that really wants to learn from you, that is the right fit, that's committed, and be able to cater to them and add a lot of value to them while also building a thriving business. Can you help outline the differences between a cohort-based course and group coaching? Yeah, so a group coaching engagement is less structured. It can be something where, you know, once a week, a group of 15 people jump on a call and, you know, maybe you have one person in the hot seat, but, but it's pretty organic in terms of what, what you spend that hour on. It's, it's very conversational. It's, it's very discussion-based. With a cohort-based course, there's more of a curriculum. So there still is that group discussion. There's the debate. There's, you know, talking with each other, with coaches, with the instructor, but there's a, a set curriculum that the instructor wants you to learn. So it's less based on, you know, each coachee bringing topics to talk about and more based on, you know, here is this three-week course. We're meeting twice a week. And here are some key concepts that I want you to learn that through my experience, you know, coaching a bunch of people and, and coming up with the same topics, these are principles that are worth you learning and digesting. And then we will apply it to your life and to your, to your situation, to your business. Uh, but there's a little bit more structure. So I think both can work really well depending on what the creator is looking for, but there's a, a bit more structure in the student experience with core-based courses. There's a lot more community too. So with group coaching, the, the model is still fairly one directional usually. There's the, the consultant or coach, and then there's the um, coaches. There's that power dynamic. Whereas with core-based courses, yes, you have the instructor, but so much of the value that you get from a core-based course is in connecting with the other students sharing ideas, being in small groups and pods, you know, where the instructor isn't even there, working on projects together. So it's much more bi-directional and it's much more community driven. I think the structure that you talked about is really important, not just as a concept to understand, but even to understand what's in front of you if you are entering this world of cohort-based courses, because that is something that you have to spend some time creating and testing and iterating on, which I think people may underestimate that commitment, not that it's bad, just that it's important. And it is something that you need to budget some time for. Can you talk about that? How somebody who has a lot of ideas and things that they're, they've taught before and they have some content, but it's not already in the form of a cohort-based course. So can you talk a little bit about how to create that structure for the first time? Yeah. I teach a course called the Maven Course Accelerator. It's a free three-week course. And we cover the end-to-end of how to build your curriculum, how to build projects, how to design breakout exercises. So there's a, a whole lot there, but I'll, I'll distill to a, a couple concepts. One is to download all of the ideas in your head onto a Google doc, onto paper, kind of take stock of all the important concepts that you think your students should know. And there's a, a framework that we use that helps with this and it's called inside out, outside in. So when you think about two circles in a Venn diagram, one is inside out. Inside out is thinking about what are all the things that you think people should know, right? So that goes in that, in that circle. Outside in are all the questions that people ask you. 
what are the, the questions that come up over and over? Where do people want to tap into your expertise? Where do they immediately think of you when they have certain kinds of problems? And who are these people? What are some of the trappings of this kind of person, this profile, this persona of person? So you look at this Venn diagram and you want to pick something that's in the middle of this Venn diagram. Both things that you think are really important for your audience to know, that you care a lot about, that you're excited to teach, and also what the market is looking for, uh, specifically what the market is looking for from you. So this automatically helps you narrow down and organize and prioritize a lot of the floating ideas that could, could really probably take up 10 courses. If you're an expert in your field, you, could, you, you have multiple courses in you, right? So how do you think about what belongs in a certain course? Think about this Venn diagram of outside in, inside out. That helps you tailor your, your frameworks, your concepts to a, a really specific individual who is coming to you with a certain kind of problem that your course can help them solve. So that's, that's one idea. The other is to think about the general ways that information is organized. So in the Maven Course Accelerator, we teach a couple different ways. One is a linear format. Linear is step one, step two, step three, step four, where the sequence and the order matters. You can't do step three unless you know how to do step two. So linear is one format. Another is front half, back half. The first half of this course, for example, we're going to talk about customer acquisition. The second half of this course, we're going to talk about customer retention. So that's an example of first half, back half. Or the first half, we're going to dive into principles. The second half, we're going to apply them to your business, right? So that's another way of thinking about organizing your content. Another format is the three-part structure. So a three-part structure could look like if you were teaching a course on paleo, part one are the key principles of paleo. Part two are ways to live a paleo lifestyle. And part three are recipes, recipes, tactics, you know, specific gyms that you can look at. One more. Modular. Modular is the opposite of linear, where the order doesn't matter. The seven habits of highly effective people is a good example of a modular format where you can read the book in a different order and you'll still get a lot out of it. Lenny Ricchitzi's course on product management is a modular format where he talks about the different, the different principles of being a great product manager, but you can theoretically learn the, the principles out of order. He's put it in a certain order, but you can kind of put it out of order if you want. So thinking about how can I teach this concept in a way that best serves my student and thinking about these key frameworks around, around models as a way to organize your thinking. Big plus for the Maven Course Accelerator. If you're hearing this, you're like, wow, there's a lot to learn here. There is, and it's very well laid out for you and taught to you through that experience. My last question, Wes, is if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, okay, I'm in, I'm interested in doing this. Because community is such a big part of a CBC, is there a minimum viable cohort size that you recommend instructors shoot for? Not really. I've seen courses be successful with 10 to 15 students and courses like Tiago's Build a Second Brain or Professor Galloway's Strategy Sprints with thousands of students in a single cohort. Granted, if, if there are, if you're hitting that, that four-figure mark with a thousand students, putting your students into subgroups is a helpful way to keep that intimacy and keep kind of the small group dynamics. But I've seen courses range the gamut. A lot of Maven courses are in the 75 to 100, 150 student mark. A lot are in you know the 30 student mark. I think the, the important thing is to not get bogged down by wanting to make your course perfect in your first iteration. Your course just isn't going to be perfect and you're going to improve it a lot in, in future iterations. So Doing a smaller initial cohort can be really helpful. With Maven Course Accelerator, for example, our alpha cohort was five students and it was all our friends. So, so that allowed us to gain confidence teaching this topic, getting our feet wet and learning a lot by doing. And then our next cohort, our beta cohort had 10 students. That was the, the cohort that you were part of. And then our next one had 85 students and our next one had 150 so you can see how it's not necessarily a linear growth rate. You can, you can do a cohort that's a little smaller. And then once you feel good about it, you can, you can scale up pretty quickly because the way that court-based courses are built, at least the way that, that we teach, that, teach how to build is very modular. So it can, you can move around these different pieces. You can, you can expand and contract certain pieces. 
to scale up or scale down based on the number of, of students that you have. And that's why I, I really wanted to bring you on because I do feel like for creators who may feel like they're still pretty small, I mean, I've had that limiting belief myself. It feels to me like a cohort-based course is a great offering to create even before you do a MOOC and put a ton of time and effort into producing something that may only get sold to five or 10 people, five or 10 people in a cohort-based course can be meaningful and keep you going. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for course creators to remember is to not compare your first cohort with someone's 50th cohort. So what you see with the courses that you've experienced that you've loved is the product of several iterations and improvements in between cohorts every single every single time that that, that creator is running their course. So knowing that everyone is iterating and constantly improving their course as you would with any other kind of product, you're constantly improving it. I think that's really encouraging. This was one of those episodes that was so easy to edit because Wes is such a clear, thoughtful speaker. I mentioned it earlier in the episode, but Wes's piece on spiky points of view is an article that I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I first read it. It's linked in the show notes and I really encourage you to give it a read. I also wanted to give a big thumbs up to the Maven Course Accelerator. I was one of the first instructors on the Maven platform teaching a course alongside Pat Flynn and Matt Gartland of Smart Passive Income. And the Maven Course Accelerator was an incredible experience. If you're thinking about teaching a cohort-based course, I cannot recommend it more highly. If you want to learn more about Wes, you can visit her website at westcow.com, and you can learn more about Maven at maven.com too. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Wes for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todhunter for mixing the show, and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.